0: It is another blessed opportunity that we have been given to assemble and to gather in the way that we are and we trust that our time together will glorify the name and the cause of God and that each of us can certainly be blessed and benefited by the times we come together to study the Word of God, to engage in worship, and to participate in encouraging each other. I would use this opportunity as a bit of a reminder that we not forget. Certainly here at the church, we also have, of course, our website, so please make use of that, the resources that are there, and direct others to also be, be aware also of some of those things that are available. Tonight we come to a lesson that will be the first in a series of lessons on the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, quite frankly, the book of Isaiah is a bit of a lengthy book, and thus... I'll have to be a bit cautious and a little bit uh, studious in terms of selecting, of course, a reasonable way for you and me to give thought to this wonderful Old Testament book of prophecy. I know from time to time we've often preached through a number of the other books of the Bible, but they've all been a bit shorter than this one. And therefore, may I be quick to say, we shall not take this book chapter by chapter. Isaiah has 66 chapters it would take us nearly a year and a half to do it rather what I shall attempt to do is a bit be a bit more thematic select various sections of the book and therefore we can i hope look at the book in a way to garner many of the great truths certainly a reminder of things that you and I can use to bless ourselves and strengthen ourselves in light of God's preservation of this book we surely realize that Isaiah, as was the case of all the other 65 books of the Bible, the Holy Spirit preserved for good reason. There are messages in it that are needful for us. There are truths in it that are incredibly useful for you and me today. It is with that in mind, I will simply use this opening slide as a very gentle introduction, and then we will devote the rest of tonight in many ways To an introduction to some of the features and aspects of the book of Isaiah. In the Old Testament, the 39 books are divided into four major sections. There are the initial five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those are followed by 12 books of history, Joshua through Esther. They are followed by five books of poetry, Job through the Song of Solomon. And the remaining, the last 17 books of the Old Testament are the Prophets. There are those who divide those 17 books into the major prophets, the first five of them, that being, of course, Isaiah through Daniel. And then the last 12 are the minor prophets, beginning with Hosea and proceeding through Malachi. So you can well tell that in terms of all the 17 books of prophecy, Isaiah is the first one. There are many things about the book of Isaiah that shall capture our attention high points if you will high water marks of blessed inspiration that will truly be very encouraging to us you'll notice that one of the intriguing things about the book of isaiah is the way in which one can divide it you and i are well aware that the bible has 66 books in total 39 of them in the old testament 27 in the new that same number is the way to divide the book of isaiah Chapters 1 through 39 are chapters which relate in many ways to the first section or the first segment of the book. The last 27 chapters, chapters 40 through 66, comprise the second. In many ways, the section that relates to future fulfillment. Many things about the church will be related in that section. Many things about the Christ. Many things about the future nature of the kingdom as referenced in Isaiah's day. So again, the entirety of the Bible, its 66 books, divides by way of number in the same way that the sections of Isaiah do. Now that being said, let's in fact close that slide by by this interesting observation. I thought what we would do tonight is reflect a bit on the nature of Isaiah the person. What do we know about him? And then we'll speak somewhat about the work in which he engaged... And we'll close our lesson then with a bit of a reflection on chapter number 1. And with that said, what about Isaiah the person? Quite often, it's certainly valuable to you and me to keep in mind that these prophets of whom we read in the Bible were people walking on earth. They had their trials, they had their difficulties, they had their challenges. And quite often, the difficulties that they faced were keen and quite often very, very strong. That will also be true of Isaiah. You'll notice at the top of this slide perhaps even his name is intriguing. We're often well aware that the names in the Bible often had a significance. They carried a meaning with them and the name Isaiah literally means Yahweh is salvation. His name not only makes reference to the God of heaven, but it also proclaims the fact that salvation is due to Him and through Him. Yahweh is salvation. Once you give thought to that idea, one of the next things that might be worthy of note, we do know who Isaiah's father was. But quite frankly, we know very little more about his growing up years. Isaiah's father is called Amaz. Thirteen times in the Old Testament, that description is given. Isaiah, the son of Amoz... And for that reason, it perhaps seems reasonable to think that Amos was perhaps a man of prominence. Maybe he labored in a rather noteworthy way in Jerusalem or in connection to the temple. But again, the Bible doesn't say that. Isaiah was his son. I might invite you to note next, we do have perhaps a clue in chapter 7 verse 3 of this book that Isaiah did live in Jerusalem. Now, even then, the case is not clear-cut, but at least it seems as if there's a suggestion of it. One chapter later in Isaiah 8, verse 3, we learn something about his wife. Isaiah was a married man. His wife is called a prophetess. We know nothing more about her. She, however, was called a prophetess. So it would seem that, again, she had the capacity, the capability, and some of the features connected with the idea of prophecy in that ancient era and day. We do know that there are other prophetesses that are mentioned in the Old Testament. There's Huldah in 2 Kings 22. There's also Deborah in Judges chapter 4, just to name two. But again, Isaiah's wife is called a prophetess. You also notice that he had two children. Isaiah had two sons. Their names are not only interesting, but in many ways the messages that these names carry will turn out to be a critical part of Isaiah's preaching ministry. Look at the first one. The older boy was named Sheer Jashub. You may ask, what does that mean? The name Sheer Jashub means a remnant shall return. In essence, as Isaiah preached and as he labored to attempt to bring a message of repentance to the people, their hearts had unfortunately moved aside from God. They were not the faithful people that they should have been. And Isaiah named his son shear Jashub. Because the message is going to include, as we shall see in the weeks to come, this message will include, you're going to go into captivity due to your sinfulness but a remnant shall return. God's hope shall continue. His faithfulness from to you will not waver, although you have not been faithful to him. So the older son, Sheer-Jashub, the younger one's harder to pronounce. May I be quick to say that God gave the name of the younger one. God told Isaiah what to name the younger boy. We shall see that in chapter 8. But the name of that son is Meir Shalal Hashbaz, which, oddly enough, is the longest name in all the Bible. Now, you may ask, what does that name mean? I've put it in parenthesis for your consideration. It means swift is booty, speedy is prey. Now again, that name is going to be significant for it's going to describe the enemies of Judah. The enemy is going to come as swift as a prey, as swift as a particular strong adversary and pounce upon you due to your unfaithfulness. It was a strong message. No doubt every time the people of Israel reflected upon the names that Isaiah's children had, they should have thought about their own sinful condition— They should have thought about their own separation from God. As we shall learn, they didn't always do that. And they brought a great deal of challenge upon the man Isaiah. With that particular introductory slide, what about some of Isaiah's work? Now, this particular slide, I've tried to perhaps turn your attention with me to chapter 1, verse 1. We have a bit of information provided to us here that helps us set the historical background. The opening verse in the book reads as follows, "...the vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah." And so immediately... We know the kings who were reigning on the throne of Judah during the time that Isaiah labored. During the time that he prophesied, and hence, we are able to set pretty closely the time period in which Isaiah labored. Notice again the names of the four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. At this point on that particular slide, Could I at least invite you to consider a bit about a timeline first and then we'll revisit this slide and continue some of the features that are contained upon it. Now this timeline is one in which the print is unfortunately a bit on the small side. So I'm just simply going to use a pointer to at least designate a few things and then we shall be able to draw some conclusions. But can I invite you to notice at the bottom is a set of years. 800 B.C., 750 B.C., 700 B.C., 650 B.C., and so on. All the way down to 400 B.C. So as we keep in mind, the numbers prior to the time of Christ counted backward. And then, of course, the days since then count forward. But you'll also notice... On the top up here, we have not only the various prophets of the Old Testament highlighted in terms of when they labored, but also the kings who reigned during those particular intervals in time. Now at the top, let me point out Isaiah. This band here has the word Isaiah beside it. And as you look at the set of years, Isaiah began his public ministry at about 745 B.C., and it continued all the way until about 685 B.C. There are some indications in the book that Isaiah may well have been a prophet for upwards of 60 years. Now, that was a very long time, of course, for folks living back at that time, for that would easily mean Isaiah must have been near 90 when he died. That was a bit unusual for people, no living back then. Isn't it interesting to consider then... As we shall learn before the lesson's over tonight, the way in which he met his death may also be a source of great encouragement for you and me. Going back to this particular slide, you may notice some of the contemporaries that, in fact, were also laboring at the same time that Isaiah was. Just below it is the man called Micah. There's an Old Testament book called Micah. Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries, they were working together. Not only that, you may give thought down here to some of the other prophets that labored at about this same time, namely Hosea. So, Hosea, Isaiah, as well as Micah all labored at roughly the same time in history. Perhaps in addition to that, again, note these kings. Here is Uzziah, followed by Jotham, followed by Ahaz, followed by Hezekiah. It was during that period in time... That Isaiah carried out his labors proclaiming to the people the message of God. As we revisit then that previous slide, there is something to be said about the way in which Isaiah came to be a prophet. God called him particularly and specifically. Chapter 6, in fact, will point that out to us in some rather interesting detail. He was called to the prophetic ministry. You'll notice one other thing. The book of Isaiah reaches a rather powerful consideration in this light. It is referenced approximately 90 times in the New Testament. So as you and I read through the New Testament books, think about how often we encounter some reference back to the book of Isaiah. Sometimes Isaiah is called the Messianic prophet. He had a great deal to say about Jesus, about the work of the Christ, about the nature of the church, about the particulars and the details that would characterize the coming kingdom of the Messiah. Again, he's called the Messianic prophet. Perhaps a few more things on that slide then would be this. We've already noted the four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Taken from chapter 1 verse 1, And as we've already looked at a bit of the timeline consistent with that idea, one of the things that can in addition be noted is, based on those four kings, the times of Isaiah's work will fall naturally into three periods. I've listed them for you at the bottom of the slide. First will be the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham. You see, the economy and the nation as a whole understood and experienced several things during that time. In particular, Judah was flourishing then. Times were good. Isaiah had a lot of things to say during that time, and by by and large were matters of warning. He would urge them, don't you be lazy. Even though times are good, make sure to honor God who gave these things to you. And make sure you appreciate the fact that God is the one who is responsible for these good times. Sadly, that message will not go very far. Next, you reach with me to that second period, the days of Ahaz. After that period of flourishing and after that period of bounty, the times of Ahaz were a time of decay. And isn't it often true that in the consideration of a nation, things happen that way? There is fortitude and liberty and strength and freedom, and then apathy sets in. Indifference sets in. And so too does decay. Deterioration. The standards that were once held to are given up. That happened to ancient Judah. And so during the days of Ahaz... There came to be a consideration connecting foreign hostilities. Foreign powers began to to rise in their strength, and they threatened Judah. We shall learn much about that in chapters 37, 38, and 39. It might be also noted that war took place during this period. Judah had to fight against some enemies, and you might go ahead and take note, some of them were the nation of Israel. God's own people. God's people fighting amongst themselves. The third period, the days of Hezekiah. You might recall Hezekiah was a much better king than Ahaz was. He was more godly. He was more interested in the things of truth and thus there was a cleansing during his period. A lot of the evil that had run rampant during the days of Ahaz, Hezekiah at least tried to do away with it, to remove it. So there was purification and cleansing. In fact, we shall discover that because the nation turned back to God during that time, God saved them the first time from Assyria. He, in fact, saved them rather amazingly. A whole host of Assyrians died in one night because God struck them so. At this point, as you have looked with me so far at a bit about the work of Isaiah... I have at least highlighted on that slide those three periods you and I just noted. Hezekiah being the last one, Uzziah being the first one, and that middle period of Ahaz, that decay period in the middle. As we continue, though, with a discussion on the work of Isaiah, without a doubt, one of the major matters that will reappear time and again in the book is going to be a reference to Assyria. The foreign power, at least at this time, was a bit of a sleeping giant. Assyria had been weakened. She was not now at her strength, but Isaiah knew because of the deliverance of God that Assyria was going to ri- rise in her strength, and she was going to threaten Judah. You'll notice at the top of that slide I've listed for you the kings of Assyria that in fact will have a part to play in our study of Isaiah. Isaiah. Some of their names, too, are a bit intriguing. Tiglath-Pileser III, followed by Shalmaneser Fifth, followed by Sargon II, followed by Sennacherib. Now, those names we shall encounter from time to time in our study, and sometimes they were stronger, and at other times they were not. But given the strength and the size of the Assyrian Empire, they were going to threaten Judah time and again turns out Isaiah is going to be a man of great strength who will advise the kings of Judah, this is what you need to do. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a godly person in the cabinet of our president who could offer sound and godly advice based on the deliverance of God's truth. That's what the kings of Judah had. They had a man named Isaiah before whom they could appear and they could trust in Isaiah's deliverance concerning the matters of what ought to be done. Sometimes the kings followed that advice, but unfortunately, sometimes they didn't. You may notice next on that slide that we do learn from 2 Chronicles 26, as well as 2 Chronicles 32, Isaiah is mentioned in those places. We learn he is a court reporter. In other words, he was one who had immediate access to the affairs going on in the kingly offices because he was the one that would record it. That being said, there were many things that Isaiah will tell us in the book that is information that would otherwise, of course, have been confidential. Things that will be beautifully and wonderfully revealed. Now, as far as the time, at least descriptive of much of Isaiah's ministry, The nation of Judah was in a troublesome period. We've already noted, economically things were fine. Religiously, it was awful. They were a people who, of course, had had the law of Moses. They knew what ought to have been the case, and they should have understood by virtue of that deliverance what was involved in being the people of God. But they had forsaken it. Even in times of prosperity, they turned to idols. And when things became bad, they would turn their attention to other nations for help. We're going to learn at one point that they will go begging to Egypt for help. Would you help us defeat Assyria? They wouldn't turn to God, but they would turn to Egypt. Turns out, even in that case, Isaiah is going to say, Don't you be turning to Egypt you need to straighten up and become godly and let God be the helper and let Him be the one to save you from this terrible otherwise catastrophe. Perhaps in light of comments such as that one, there are those who will argue on occasion that Isaiah the man did not write all of this book. You may have seen particular theories to the effect that, well, maybe he wrote the first 39 chapters Many will be quick to say he did not write much, if any, of the latter 27. I believe they're completely wrong. I would think the evidence within the Bible itself testifies Isaiah wrote all of it. I would invite you to look at some point at John chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. That's in the heart of the New Testament. In that set of verses, two different passages from Isaiah are quoted One of them comes from the first 39 chapters, one from the latter 27, and the New Testament writer said that Isaiah wrote both of them. I would think that conclusively settles it. The man Isaiah, all throughout this discussion, I will assert, he wrote all of it. Perhaps in addition to all those things. Let's close that slide with that final comment that I've listed for your consideration on it. One of the first things that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've all probably heard the stories or at least the record of those Dead Sea Scrolls. How that in roughly 1947, over the Middle Eastern part of the world, they found some scrolls in these caves. One of the first scrolls that was found was a veritable treasure trove as a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. A complete copy, all 66 chapters. That's fascinating. That gives us an impression that those folks of the ancient era, they not only studied and gave great appreciation to the book of Isaiah, but they preserved it that way. One of the additional things that that highlighted for us was the correctness of the book of Isaiah as we now have it. You compare the Isaiah we have to the Isaiah on those Dead Sea Scrolls, it's identical So it was faithfully transcribed and copied over all those intervening years. The Isaiah we have is the Old Testament book of Isaiah, written by a man 2,750 years ago from our time frame. And God saw fit to preserve it and to bring it before us. The last thing, the last part of the lesson this evening will then be, an almost immediate appreciation of the matter that Isaiah brings before the people. We've already noted tonight that the people in many ways had failed. Although God was their God, they were not His people in the sense that they had been faithful to Him. Isaiah wastes no time. And so I'd like to read several of the verses from chapter 1. So notice this is how he begins the book. Don't you find it interesting that oftentimes, as you and I compose a letter, we'll start out gently, and we may well have some small talk to begin, and then if we have something corrective to say, or something that is a, re- a re- rebuking character, we will bring that in only later. Listen to how chapter 1 begins. Verse 2, chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knoweth his owner, and the ass his master's crib, but Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. That's all in verses 2 through 5. Isaiah has begun, and immediately he said, I stand before this nation is full of corruption. He even likened it in some ways to an animal and said, even animals do better than this. The ox knows his owner. The donkey, the ass, is very well familiar with the crib. And yet my people, and I have been faithful to them, I've nourished them, I've fed them, and yet, they don't know me. They have forsaken me. You can begin to hear the tone that will be characteristic of quite a bit of what we shall find in this book of Isaiah. But now verse 5 develops this thought even further like this. Why should ye be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devoured in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city." except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. Don't you suppose that that last verse especially would capture the attention of God's people? We're all well aware that Sodom and Gomorrah hold a very strong place among those who ignore God. In Genesis 19, we remember what happened to those places. God rained fire and brimstone on them, and they have forever, of course, ceased to be. That's what happens when you disobey God. And in this chapter, Isaiah compared Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. You're as bad as they were, and therefore you shouldn't be surprised if you too find a strong element of bad things are going to happen to you. Now, that comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not the only time in the book it's going to happen. But it certainly seems significant the book starts this way. Let's read further and cast a spotlight on one of the first problems that the prophet Isaiah brings before their attention. Did you notice in verse numbers 5 and 6, he said, You are sick. Now, notice he's talking about spiritual sickness, They might have been fine physically, but from the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there's no soundness in you. They were religiously in a very bad place. Look at the first particular that he now mentions in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. There it is again. He calls them Sodomites. He calls them people who are like Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is this multitude of your sacrifices unto me? Saith the Lord, I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, a calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear Your hands are full of blood. In that set of verses that you and I just noted, Isaiah early on in this book says, Problem number one has the following consideration. Your worship is empty. Oh, you come together and offer the sacrifices, but God says, I hate it, and I won't accept it. Now at this point, many would be quick to say, but didn't God command this back in Leviticus? Didn't he command in Deuteronomy they were to come and offer these? Of course he did. And now to this people he says, I hate this. I don't like the way you're observing the Sabbaths. I don't care one little bit for the incense you're offering. The problem is easy to see, isn't it? It comes in the wording of the end of verse 12. When you come to appear before me, so they were coming... Who hath required it at your hands to tread my cords? It had become an empty ritual. It had become simply a habit. They would come, but their heart wasn't in it. They would offer the sacrifices and the incense, but it wasn't meaningful to them. They just did it because they felt like they needed to. And that aspect in worship is going to have consequences for so many of the chapters that follow. God wants our heart in it. Our service needs to be genuine. Our service needs to be, of course, real. That, of course, is a powerful truth for you and me to consider. It isn't enough just to come a few times a week. Do we like to be here? Do we thrill at the thought of being here? Do we wondrously desire to worship and to serve the God of heaven by our presence? That's what He wanted from them. Later on, we're going to find in chapter 5, he's going to have something to say about their singing. I wonder if that's going to have implications for us. Later on in chapter 28, he's going to have something to say about the other aspects of their service. I wonder if that, too, will ring with power for us. It surely will. God has always wanted service that is dedicated and devoted and given in a willing fashion. Brother Gary noted this morning, right before we, of course, gave our contribution, how significant it is that it be given cheerfully and willingly and of a desiring heart to do so. That's only one consideration, but so many others can be amplified and developed in exactly the same way. The problem, one of the problems has already been seen, and we're only halfway through chapter 1. You can get a feeling that then through the other 65 and a half chapters, what are some things that Isaiah will challenge the people with so that they can be urged to be the kind of people God would have them to be? We'll consider many of those things in the weeks that follow. For right now, as we close that particular slide, could we then come to verses 16 and following? Let's at least end on a positive note. So far, the initial message has been and to the point. You're sick. You're like Sodom and you need to change. Listen to how sweet this sounds. Verse 16, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Isaiah said there's hope. I know there are problems now, he would say, but... You can be clean. You can be made whole again. You can put aside the sickness. And now verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so we find in Isaiah 118 this incredible reference to the beautiful reality of the forgiveness of sin etched in the pages of the Old Testament. Now you and I know well the full fruition of that won't be seen until the days of Christ, but Isaiah preached it then. He preached a message that your sins can become like snow, white, forgiven, purified, and cleansed, though they may well have been as crimson. White like wool. As you and I close the lesson that way, in many ways it just perhaps brings us to consider what will be some of the next developments of the next section. We'll turn our attention to that on, on our next occasion. But I hope tonight, at the very least, we have learned in the book of Isaiah that it is the first of 17 Old Testament books of prophecy. And the book rings with not only the reality of sinfulness but with a beautiful promise of forgiveness to those who will do what the Lord says. That message is not so much different than what you and I should appreciate today. God demands repentance. He always has. Isaiah preached a long time, and quite often the people weren't that interested in hearing it, and we shall find that tradition says he was put to death by being cut in two. Sometimes you and I see magicians who will know saw a person in two. Now, of course, that's only some illusion. It doesn't really happen. A number of rather strong traditions. Now, since it's not recorded in the Bible, we can't say for sure. But there are many traditions who, that seem to point to the fact that Hebrews 11.37 may well refer to Isaiah. Hebrews 11.37 is the chapter that describes the honor roll of faith. Those great worthies of the Old Testament era. And when it comes to that verse, it says, "...they were sawn asunder, cut in two. Now again, could that have been Isaiah? Perhaps. A man dedicated, devoted, and loyal to the God in heaven... And he preached with power to a people who, in many cases, weren't that interested in hearing what he had to say. May our hearts be more tender than, than those of that day, and may we desire to appreciate that God's remnant has always been promised. Tonight, if there's anyone in this assembly who may be upon thinking about the problems that the people of Judah faced that has brought to your consideration problems you face, they could have been faithful, so too can you and I. If we could be of some assistance or help tonight or encouragement, we'd love to do it. If you'd love to obey the gospel tonight, that's done. As you become a Christian this way, believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. Once you become a Christian, be faithful to that calling. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Cling to it ever. Philippians 3, verse 14 if you strayed away from it. Don't remain in that location, but just like they, God wants to reason with you. He wants to forgive you and He wants to cleanse you. And so He urges you to come so that He can make you as just like wool, just like snow, clean and pure. But you need to make the decision to let Him do that. If you are guilty of sins known in a public way, tonight we'd be honored to make acknowledgment of your confession and your repentance, and we'd go to God on your behalf. This evening, if we could be of some help, will not you let us do that and be of that assistance while together we stand and while we sing.